Well, good evening. Uh, my name is Scott McCluskey. I come from Larne in Northern Ireland, so I've come quite a wee distance today, as many of you have. I'm just going to try and flick this over. And um, after a long flight from Larne, just to pass on the greetings from my church, Larne Baptist, and from United Beach Missions, Ireland, and also from Young Life, Ireland. And for many years, we have enjoyed great fellowship with many of you, and we look forward uh, to continuing that into the future. It was lovely to have Tim um, over with us last week. We also had Chris Herwig over with us last week. And um, Tim brought great news of what Beach Missions has been doing in England and Wales and throughout Europe as well. And sitting through this tonight, um, what a great encouragement to see what God is doing. But we've all travelled a long way. Um, I left that city, which is painful for me, Liverpool, although I was glad they didn't win at the weekend, and uh, made it to uh, Newtown. And so many of us have We've reached our goal for the weekend, which is the reunion. And as has been said already, we're going to be looking at lessons from the life of the Master. And my topic this evening is the topic of prayer. And so we'll be thinking about the Lord's Prayer, but we'll be also thinking about how the life of Christ, the life of our Master, supports and backs up everything that he teaches us in that passage the setting of the Lord's Prayer is, is, math, is the Sermon on the Mount. And so in Matthew chapter 5, there's something we read over and over and over again because Christ is putting something right. He's putting right the false religious teaching that the Pharisees and the teachers of the law have been passing on to the people. And so as he speaks to this great multitude, he says to them, You have heard that it was said. But I say to you. And so he does this across many areas of the law. Because the Pharisees had been teaching a low view and a low level of the law. Such a low view and a low level that the people almost felt they could grasp that righteousness. They could attain that righteousness which was by the law. But Christ comes along and, and he contradicts that where the Pharisees were seeking a righteousness of self that comes from the law, he showed the people that the law was out of their reach. The Pharisees say, well, if you murder someone, you'll be liable for judgment. But Christ says, if you're angry with your brother, you'll be liable for judgment. The Pharisees say, well, if you commit adultery, you'll be liable for judgment. But Christ raises that law higher out of reach by saying, if you look at someone with lustful intent, you've broken the command and are liable for judgment. The teachers of the law might have said, divorce is fine as long as you give a certificate of divorce, as long as it's legal. But Christ showed that there were severe restrictions on when divorce could be sanctioned. And Christ did this across many areas, oaths and retaliation, turning the other cheek, and loving your enemies as opposed to hating your enemies. And Christ showed how high the level of the law was, what a high standard of righteousness was required. And really what it says is that if you want to enter heaven, your righteousness must exceed that of the Pharisees. He showed the Pharisees themselves that they hadn't attained that level of righteousness. And so as the people heard this, they must have thought to themselves, it's all futile. 
how can we ever meet this standard? They may have asked themselves, can there be another way to become righteous? And of course, Christ would teach that righteousness from God depends on faith. The righteousness from God that depends on faith. I remember when I was a young teenager, I had a low-level view of the law. I thought to myself, I could be good enough, righteous enough, by observing the law, just by being good living, really to try and tip those balances in my, in my favor. But when I was 17, sitting through a mission, sitting through an even evangelistic message, on that occasion, the law was lifted to a level that I realized I could not attain. And in that moment, I was terrified of standing before God. What account could I give for myself? And so that brings us to lessons of life from the Master about prayer. And the first lesson I want to mention is this. It's not a lesson about what how Christ prayed. But the lesson is that Christ hears the sinner's prayer. When the thief hung on the cross beside Christ and he said, this man, we, we hang here justly. This man has done nothing wrong. Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And our Savior heard his prayer, heard his plea. Today you will be with me in paradise. And so the first thing for us to remember is Christ hears our prayers. Christ hears the sinner's prayers. Hallelujah, what a saviour. Everyone who calls in the name of the Lord will be saved. But the second thing we can learn from the life of Christ, the life of our master about prayer is it's essential. He did it himself. Christ prayed. And so when we consider the questions, the first question being when did he pray? Well, it tells us in Mark chapter 1, verse 35, very early in the morning, while it was still dark, Jesus got up, left the house, and went off to a solitary place where he prayed. Very early in the morning. Mark chapter 1, verse 35. And later on, when we come to Mark 6, verse 46, it says, after leaving them, he went up on a mountainside to pray later that night. Christ prayed early in the morning. Christ prayed late at night. And he played through the day. And we can find many instances of that in the scriptures. Let me just connect the screen again. I'll just take a wee second. The second thing to consider is um, where did he pray? And so that passage that we just read, Mark chapter 1, verse 35, and into Mark chapter 6 as well, it says he went out of the house early in the morning and he went to a solitary place. Now, just... Isn't it great when technology just... There we go. Hmm. 
We're nearly there. Great. And the second thing there was, where did he pray? Where did our Savior pray? In a solitary place, Mark chapter 1, verse 35. And he was alone, Mark chapter 6. And there was public prayer as well. But Christ prayed on his own. There was a personal devotional life. And so when we read the Lord's Prayer, and we read the verses around about it, we can see what he contrasts right prayer with wrong prayer. When he considers the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, they're like that plucked rose. They look beautiful, whitewashed tombs, lovely on the outside, but in the inside full of death and decay, like that plucked rose, withering and dying. And Christ says, beware of practicing your religion, beware of practicing your faith, like these Pharisees, like these teachers of the law. They practice their righteousness to be seen and receive praise from men. They practice their charity to be seen and receive praise from men. They practice their prayer to be seen and receive praise from men. They already have their reward. There's no additional reward for them. But the Christian, his prayer is like the, 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 the plant that's planted, the flower that's planted. Because you have that visible part up above, but you have that secret part below which you cannot see. That secret part which anchors the plant and sustains the plant and nourishes the plant and that secret part which allows the plant to grow and to become fruitful. And so Christ says, when you pray, go into your room, shut the door, pray to your Father who is in secret and your Father will reward you. There's reward in prayer. So we see when we should pray, morning and evening and through the day. We see where we should pray, a solitary place on our own for our Father sees in secret and rewards in secret. And we should also pray in that public place. But the next thing is, who should we pray to? Who should we pray to? You know, Christ was outrageous on the Sermon on the Mount. The teachers of the law and the Pharisees must have been furious as he showed their righteousness to be as, as filth in the sight of God. They could not attain that level of righteousness. But throughout his ministry, Christ referred to God as his Father. What an outrageous thing to say. And so we read later on in the, in the Gospels, for this reason they tried all the more to kill him. Not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own Father, making himself equal with God. But the life of our Saviour shows that this was a justified claim. Because after his baptism, there was that voice from heaven which people heard, this is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. The evidence was there. This man could call God his Father because he was the Father's only begotten Son. Yet that might be all right, but I'm a sinner. How can I come before the God of creation and call him my Father? Later on after the transfiguration, God speaks from heaven again. 
This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Listen to Him. Listen to Him. Listen to Christ when He says, Address the God Almighty as your Father. And not only are we to address God as our Father, not only are we to give Him that name, but that name brings with it all the connotations of a relationship between a father and a son, or a father and a daughter, or a father and a child. For the Father Himself loves you, says Christ, because you have loved me and believe that I came from God. And so when we pray, we pray to our Father in heaven who loves us and who delights in us coming into his presence and who delights in us conversing with him and bringing our lives before him. What a tremendous privilege. When do we pray? Where do we pray? Who do we pray to? But the next thing is, what do we pray? What do we pray? And so Christ starts off by saying, Hallowed be thy name. Hallowed be thy name. Christ had a zeal for the honour and glory of his Father and his Father's name. Christ had a zeal for the honour and glory of the people who carried his Father's name. Christ had a zeal for the building that carried his Father's name. And when he went into that temple, the temple to the living God, and in that temple he saw thieves, and it was a marketplace and a den of robbers, well, he confronted that sin. And he cleansed that temple of, of those practices. And then we read, as we read down through Matthew chapter 1, that people came to him and he healed them. And after he healed, there was worship. The children skipped around him singing his praises. And so when we pray, we desire to see Christ's name, God's name hallowed in our government. We desire to see his name hallowed across our land. But we desire to see his name hallowed in our lives as well. And so like Christ, a lesson from our Master is as we're praying, as we desire to see God's name exalted in our lives, we confront the sin in our lives. As he confronted the sellers. We cleanse those practices from our lives as he cleansed the temple. And it can be painful as we cleanse those practices. It can be painful as we cleanse those relationships. But Christ heals. Christ restores. And Christ puts into place proper worship. That God's name be hallowed. Let his name be hallowed across our country, but let his name be hallowed in our lives as well. It's helpful as we think about the rest of the Lord's Prayer just to contemplate the Ark of the Covenant. What was in the Ark of the Covenant? We see three things. We see the jar of manna. We see Aaron's rod. We see the Ten Commandments or the law. And the law would remind the people as they looked at the Ark of the Covenant that they had disobeyed God. The manna would remind the people that they had rejected God's provision or grumbled over his provision. And Aaron's rod would remind the people that they had rejected his authority. They desired it themselves. And above all of that, the mercy seat, where mercy could be given and mercy could be received. And so as we think about the Lord's prayer, hallowed be thy name, 
Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. We desire to see God's authority in our government, across our land, but first it has to start in our own lives. Thy will be done. You know, if you think about a boy and a girl, and there's no relationship to it between them, it doesn't really matter uh, where they live, what church they go to, what their hobbies are. Do they want a cat or a dog? Do they want no children, five children? If they're not going to be together, it doesn't matter if they disagree on those things or want to go different paths. But as soon as they start going out, what you find is there has to be something in common there. They should spend some time together, maybe enjoy some pastimes together. And then a question might be popped. And as the question's popped, well, there's going to have to be more agreement. There's maybe agree on which church to go to, maybe have an idea about which town we'll live in, continue to spend time together, enjoy pastimes together. And then, as the ring is put on the finger, they should walk that road together. There should be agreement about all of those things, church and pets and diet and time and pastimes and children, because they want to walk harmoniously together. And of course, that will be by negotiation, it might be by compromise, settlement, agreement, submission. But when we think about thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven, what is our Savior's example in this? As our Savior was in Gethsemane, as our Savior contemplated being arrested and abused and tortured and crucified, as our Savior exhibited physical symptoms and signs of stress and strain, our Savior prayed, Matthew 26, my, Matthew 26, my Father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me. If it's possible, if there's another way to reconcile your people to you, let this cup pass from me. But there was no other way. It wasn't possible any other way. And so it was enough that the Father's will be done. Father, if you're willing, remove this cup from me. Maybe it might not be possible, but Father, if you're willing, you could remove this cup from me. But it was the Father's will that Christ went. And it was enough for Christ to do the Father's will. And sometimes our wills can be in conflict with the Father. Something we want to own, something we want to see, someone we want to meet, somewhere we want to go. Something we don't want to do, something, someone we don't want to meet, somewhere we don't want to go. But the example of our Savior, the lesson from our Savior's life is, your will is sufficient for me. No negotiation, no compromise. I will do your will. And that should be our prayer. What did Christ pray? Give us this day our daily bread. Give us this day our daily bread. It's not a wish list. It's not where we come with a list of things that we would like to have in our lives. Earlier on in Matthew 6, it says that the Father knows what you need before you ask. He knows what we need. Give us this day our daily bread. When we pray this, we are praying for that for, for those physical needs we have 
to do those physical things in his service. When we're praying this, we're praying for those spiritual needs we have to enable us to do those spiritual aspects of his service. And so our Savior says, my will, my food, is to do the will of him who sent me. My food is to do the will of him who sent me. Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Give us this day our daily bread. Give me that which I physically need to do your will physically. Give me that which I spiritually need to do your will spiritually. Give us this day our daily bread. What did Christ tell us to pray? Forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. How many people can we name or we have something that we resent them for? How many people can we name where there is bitterness there? Or do we see bitterness and resentment in someone else that we know? Again, what's the lesson from our Savior? They tried to stone him. They tried to throw him from the mountainside. They said he had the spirit of Beelzebub. They bribed one of his disciples. They arrested him. They crucified him. And yet on the cross, Christ could pray, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And our Savior proved that he held no resentment. He held no bitterness because when the thief who just moments before had been hurling insults at him said, Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom, Christ says the most gracious words, today you will be with me in paradise. Forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. When we look at that Ark of the Covenant, we see that place where mercy is given and mercy is received by the blood of Christ. And when Christ looks at us, when God looks at us, he wants to see a people who not only receive mercy, but who give mercy. Who have not only received forgiveness, but who also forgive. Forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And after he teaches us in the Lord's Prayer, his words immediately are, if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your heavenly Father forgive your trespasses. It's very serious. It's black and white. As those who have received mercy... Let's be merciful. As those who have been forgiven, let us forgive. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. I'm not going to labor this point because I know this is coming up later in the week. But Christ was led by the Spirit into the wilderness. And in the wilderness, Satan came when he was weak and hungry. And Suggested bread. Some would say, Who are you by who are you 
Some would say, are you the king of the Jews? Some would say, by what authority do you do these things? And Satan would tempt him with, if you're the son of God, prove it. Christ in his prayer would would show that longing to return to the glory of the Father. And Satan would say, I'll glorify you. I'll exalt you if you'll bow down and worship me. But our Savior resisted temptation. And yet, we're supposed to pray. Lead us not into temptation. How many young people, how many old people today play and flirt with temptation? How many people play and flirt with alcohol? How many people play and flirt with relationships that cause severe temptation? The wrong crowd. If we are praying, lead us not into temptation. If we are praying, deliver us from evil, then we shouldn't be running into temptation and we shouldn't be seeking out evil. And if we're praying this prayer, our lives, our action, our walk should really be significantly different. Christ was led by the Spirit into the wilderness. And if we're walking with the Spirit, well, the Spirit, we're told in Romans, strengthens us in our weaknesses. Christ says, if you who are evil know how to give your children good gifts, how much more will your Father give you the Holy Spirit when you ask Him? He strengthens us in our weaknesses. He enables us to resist temptation. He helps us saves us from falling into evil. And so let's pray this. Let's work it out in our lives and let's walk with the Spirit who strengthens us in our weaknesses. Last one, why do we pray? Why do we pray? I think one of the most tragic Passages in the Bible is Romans chapter 1 where we read of the fall of our race. And we read of the fall of churches and we read of the fall of individuals who start off with the knowledge of God but come to a point where they neither honour him anymore nor are thankful. You know, when we come to the Lord in prayer, we honor him in prayer, hallowed be your name. And we're thankful in prayer, we come with thanksgiving. But if we're not praying, if we're not a people of prayer, well, there's nothing in our devotional private lives that is honoring God. There's nothing in our private devotional lives that is thankful to God. And so that slide occurs where we fall down those different sins catalogued in Romans chapter 1, falling to the point where people try and drive the knowledge of God from memory all the way down to the point where they actually start to celebrate and approve the sin of others. And we see that in our nation today where sin is celebrated. Why do we pray? Because when we pray, we are honouring our Father and we are thankful from Him and we are not going down that slide. 
Why do we pray? I love the story of the, of the disciples on the road to a mess. And as they're on the road to a mess, they're speaking with Christ and he's opening the scriptures to them. And as they're communing with him over the scriptures, their hearts are burning within them as they're on the road. And as we pray over God's word, as we speak with him, as he opens the scriptures to us, our hearts can burn within us. It is a blessing. It's a real blessing. A blessing that we can know and a blessing that we can certainly feel. And that passage started off with, what is done in secret, the Father will reward. There's blessing in prayer. I drove from Liverpool this today, but it's the second time I've driven from Liverpool. The first time I drove from Liverpool uh, was maybe four or five years ago. We were on our way to St. Ives. The first part of the journey was nice and quick. And we stopped at Birmingham and uh, we went to the Cadbury's factory. It was really exciting. No Oompa Loompas, no Willy Wonka, but the kids enjoyed it. Uh, the middle part of the journey, really quick, got to Bristol, thought only an hour left. Yeah. <laughs> and then my son still has nightmares about the M5. It went on and on and on. And on. But eventually we did get to Land's End. There was an end to the trip. You know, life's a little bit like that. Can start off pretty quick, can be some exciting things along the way, but there comes a point where maybe we begin to slow down because of age or illness, and eventually it will come to the end. You know, as I stood in Land's End, and looked out towards the sea, I thought to myself, I would love to go to the Silly Isles. But there was nobody there to take me to the Silly Isles. And I would love to have gone to the Silly Isles. Is a trip from Land's End Silly? Not at all. The islands are there. Is a trip after Life's End Silly? Lessons from the life of the master. He died, was buried, and he rose again. And he is alive. And he ascended into heaven. And one day he will come to take us to be with him where he is. There is life after death. And that can be with the Savior. But how will we travel that road to life's end? I would urge everyone here to do it the way the people travelled on the road to a mess with the Saviour, in conversation with Him, opening the Scriptures with Him, having your heart burning within you, enjoying that blessing from God, and being able to look forward to that time at life's end when He will take you to where you hope to be. What a wonderful Saviour! We're going to conclude with um, before the throne of before the <laughs> you know what, can't remember the name of the song before the they'll come to me in a wee minute before the throne of grace.
before the throne of before the throne of God above. There we go. There we go. Before we sing, let's pray. Let's pray. Wonderful Father, as we bow before you, we have a wonderful Father in heaven and we rejoice that you love us. We praise you for a wonderful Saviour in Jesus Christ who loved us and washed us from our sin by his own blood. We praise you for a Spirit who loves us and strengthens us in our weaknesses and who conforms us increasingly to the likeness of our Saviour. Father, as we bow before you, we praise you for all the graces that you have given us, that we might walk with you, that we might be increasingly sanctified to be like our Saviour. And we pray, Lord, to avail of all those graces. Dear Father, we pray that we would not be hypocrites. We pray, Lord, that our faith would not be skin deep, that our religion would not be skin deep, that we would simply not do things to be seen for the praise of men, but we humbly desire we would do it to your glory, for you are worthy. In Jesus Christ's name, amen.